I would work around the clock, right? Weekends, because I was passionate. And that, that's one thing I'd say to anybody who's passionate about what they do, make sure you you do things that are sustainable because no matter how passionate you are, no matter how much you love your job, if you're doing it like 24-7, seven days a week and you don't give yourself a break just because you love it, it's still work and it will eventually catch up to you. And I did have that moment, <laughs> you know, those moments, you know, when I was a one-minute operation, I loved it. And that's why I was so quick to hire somebody else on my team just to make sure we build the infrastructure to kind of, you know, sustain ourselves for many years ahead. What's up, everyone? I'm Mario Fraioli. This is the Morning Shakeout Podcast, and my guest this week is Howie Kafleski. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I am super excited to share it here with all of you. Howie is someone that I've known since 2006. He's one of the top agents in all of endurance sports and one of the nicest guys that I've ever known. He's the founder and president of Howie Management, and his agency represents some of the top athletes in track and field, road racing, trail running, and triathlon. His most notable client is his brother Meb, who he has been representing since 2005, and his roster also includes Alephine Tuliamuk, Alexi Pappas, Katie Zafaris, and Joe Gray, amongst others. We covered a pretty wide range of topics in this conversation, from the book he's been helping his dad out with, to the role that storytelling has played throughout his life. We talked about coming to the U.S. from Eritrea and some of his earliest memories as a young kid to how he ended up at UCLA and the path he followed to becoming a sports agent. Finally, we got into the weeds of the business, marketing, and sponsorship side of professional running and discussed how contracts have evolved over the past 15 years, what the job responsibilities are for an athlete today, how he sees things evolving in the future, and a lot more. A big thank you to New Balance for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. They've asked me to tell you about the new Fresh Foam 1080 V11, and that's real easy for me to do because the 1080 has been the shoe that I've logged the most miles in over the past year or so. I didn't think it was possible, but I love the new 1080 V11 model even more than I did the V10, which is saying a lot. The Fresh Foam 1080 V11 is the best fitting shoe that I own, hands down, and the Fresh Foam X cushioning feels super comfortable underneath my feet, whether I'm running 5 miles or 15. It's lightweight and flexible, but also responsive and durable. Basically, the perfect trainer to log most of your miles in, which is exactly what I do in them. I wear it on most of my non-workout days and for long runs too. So check out the Fresh Foam 1080 V11 on newbalance.com or at the links in the show notes and consider adding a pair to your rotation today. Also, a big thank you to Girls on the Run for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. This is an awesome nonprofit and I am stoked to be partnering with them. Over the past 25 years, Girls on the Run has been inspiring girls to know and activate their limitless potential and boldly pursue their dreams. On Thursday, March 25th at 7 p.m. Eastern, that's just a few weeks from now, you are invited to join an exciting 25th birthday virtual event celebrating the inherent power and courage of girls. Keynote speaker Hoda Kotb will open an evening full of remarkable stories and meaningful celebration that is not to be missed. The best part? 
You're invited. Join me and RSVP today at gotr.gives slash TMS. That's gotr.gives slash TMS. This live stream event will include a keynote address from Hoda Kotby, a discussion panel with experts and athletes about building confidence in girls through physical activity, and a lot more. The event is free to attend, but donations can be made and special add-on packages are available for purchase, such as a copy of Hoda's newest book and a pair of Gooder sunglasses customized for girls on the run. So check out gotr.gives TMS for more details and register today. All right, buckle up and let's go for a ride with one of my favorite people in all of running, Howie Kofleski. All right, Howie Kofleski, we've known one another for 15 years now. You're someone I've had a lot of respect for since our very first interaction back in 2006 when you set me up for an interview with your brother, Meb, and it is an honor and a pleasure to welcome you to the Morning Shakeout podcast. Uh, thank you so much, Mario. I have enjoyed uh, working with you, getting to know you for all these years also, so I'm really excited about our conversation today. I actually thought that this might be the first time that I've ever formally interviewed you. Uh, and then I remembered back in 2012, you answered a few questions for me at Competitor. And I had to remind myself as I was prepping for this that we had actually had that conversation and people can find it online and, and read it. So this is going to be a little bit longer form. And I'm just excited to have the time with you and to talk about your life and things that you've worked on and just get your thoughts on some things that are happening in the sport and in the industry. Sounds good. So you mean this is not just five questions, this interview? <laughs> no, this is not five questions. <laughs> I remember it's it's funny that, that you actually bring that up because that was a series that I had at Competitor. It was five questions, so it was very succinct. And this is the complete opposite of that. I mean, I don't know how long we're going to go, but it'll almost certainly be over an hour and uh, who knows, maybe close to, to two hours. But I'll try not to take up too, too much of your time. Um, there's a lot that I want to talk to you about, but I'm really curious off the top about the book that you've been working on with your dad, um, Rusom Kofleski. You've dropped hints about it in some of our exchanges over email and over text. I haven't read it yet, but I hope to get a copy soon. What can you tell me about the book you've been working on? Yeah, so this has been a, a passion project for the last, I would say, 11 years. So this all started when um, Meb was writing his first book, Run to Overcome. Mm -hmm. And for that book, it's just kind of like Meb's life story up to the 2009 New York City Marathon. And we, you know, it was all about our family journey and Meb's journey in his life. And so we were interviewing our dad to get all the details about his journey and our family journey. And at some point during these interviews with my dad, I realized he was going into so much detail that I knew we weren't going to do justice to his story in Meb's Run to Overcome book. Mm -hmm. And so I said, Dad, you know, like the only way to resolve this is you need to write your own book. And seriously, I didn't know how seriously my dad would take it. But man, he started writing and writing and writing. And he hand wrote, you know, 700 pages and he just went from the very beginning, you know, just and then um, it was a long process. Right. And things would happen in his life <laughs> when he was getting towards the end of his story and he would update it. 
and it has been many years. And there were it wasn't like ten consecutive years, but it, on and off for several years. And um, last year, I think it was about a year and a half ago, my dad was really sick, and he um, he had a foot infection while he was in Eritrea, and he came back with my mom. And Meb actually took him straight to the hospital, and we were so glad he went to the hospital because um, they noticed an infection in his foot, and things were, you know, like not looking great. Um, mm -hmm. Luckily, the medical care was great, and but he was, uh, you know, probably the least healthiest I've ever seen him. Right, and my dad just said, "Marhawi, please, you know, I want this book project to be complete, you know, while I'm here." And that really put the pressure on me in a positive way, of course, to get this project done. And here we are a year and a half later, the book will be um, launched and go live on March 5th, which is my dad's 84th birthday. And I'm very excited uh, that this, you know, long, long project, passion project is finally coming to a place where people can um, read about my, my dad and my family's journey. What's the title of the book? Yeah, so the book is called 7 to 77. And so, um, and it's also called uh, The Torch Relay from Generation to Generation. So my father is kind of um, within the Eritrean American and Eritrean culture. He's one of the last of this um, oral tradition, right? Like mm -hmm. he remembers stories that have been passed on from his father and his grandfather and his grandmother and his mother. And I realized that, you know, you know, I have 11 siblings and there's no way we can retain all that information. And so it's a way for him to share, you know, all of that in writing so we can share that, you know, so we know it as, you know, me and my siblings uh, and anybody else that's interested and then we can pass it on to the next generation. So it's kind of like a relay, you know, he's passing everything on to us and the future generation and uh, yeah, so it's from seven to seventy-seven, which is a little bit misleading because my dad is going to turn eighty-four. But you got to mm -hmm. start right, stop writing at some point because the story is not complete yet. You know, uh, dad has a lot more living to do. But also from a standpoint of where the book started, his earliest memories are probably from the age of seven, and he has a vivid, detailed memory. But not only that, it actually predates his birth, so he has stories from. Um, his, his, his grandmother actually, right. And how she, um, you know, just where he was born and why he was born there and all of these details that it's kind of like, if we don't retain this information now, it'll be lost amongst, um, you know, just the current, the present. So mm -hmm. it's a little misleading, but, um, you know, it's kind of, but the, the, the days and years that my dad has lived, Oh man, he gets into the detail of who said what, at what time of the day, what they were wearing. So much amazing detail that I just, you know, he still remembers to this day. And that's truly amazing to me. I love the analogy of the passing of the torch. And that just seems so fitting for your family because on a wider level, because of your brother Meb, it's known as a, a running family. And I know Meb is like the, the standout runner of the family, but that's um you know i just i just love yeah. the idea of of taking the torch and passing it on to the next generation so that they have it and then that will get passed on to the next generation and so on and so forth exactly so one of my really good friends uh robel Afuarki, he told me this he said um 
you know, a lot of times we say life is a marathon, and that is true. They said it's more like a marathon relay at the end of the day, right? Mm. So your your parents get to a certain point, you know, pass on the baton to you, and you pass it on to your kids or the future generation. So it's almost like true. I think each one of our lives is a marathon, but life in general is more of a marathon relay. And so I think this is where it applies to what my dad is doing with his story and his journey. What language will the book be published in? Yeah, so the book will be published in both English and our native language of Tigrinya. And the oh, cool. uh, interesting story is I speak Tigrinya, I understand Tigrinya, but I can't read and write Tigrinya efficiently or effectively. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's been really a big project and lots of people are helping me out to make sure that we can publish it in both uh, Tigrinya and in English. You mentioned how your dad wrote 700 pages so far of the book. And I know just from our conversations offline that he did that all by hand. And I'm curious what you did with all of that, how you were able to pare it down, if you pared it down at all, so that it would fit into a, a book. Yeah, absolutely. So um, initially it was just uh, telling my dad, please write write everything. So whether we publish it or it's just an internal document for us to use and to reference, that was very important to us. So I said, just write, go ahead, stream of consciousness. And my dad really does speak in a stream of consciousness when he's telling stories. It's like Mm -hmm. there's some tangents. He always gets back to the main story, but he's, you know, he's telling all these relevant details along the way. And so anyways, he kind of wrote like that and he just kept writing and writing and writing. So that was, that's it. That's the most valuable asset is my dad's stories, either in audio form from him or in written form. So that was a huge accomplishment because then we felt like, okay, it's documented. Now there's still a lot to do after that, right? You have to edit it, you have to type it and things like that. So the process was, and over the years I've, really been very fortunate to like develop an amazing team of people that just kind of saved the day and have been critical to this project along the way. So, you know, I might be putting all the pieces together, connecting all the dots, but I'm really very fortunate to have some amazing people that along the way have played very, very important roles. And so, yeah, the first step was, you know, taking all that, um, that was written in handwriting, right. By my dad and having it, typewritten and that was handwritten in Tigrinya and so um, I had to find somebody to type it up in Tigrinya and that was in kind of stream of conscious uh, format then the next step was to kind of uh, start polishing it up a little bit and I worked with somebody else to help with that and then once that was done and that took a little bit of time because my dad you know you take out one sentence or a paragraph and he's like that's too important you can't take that out (laughs) And so, you know, there were some conversations about what needed to be in there, you know, because there's a there's the documentation and then there's also yep. like storytelling, right? To make sure it's it's good for the audience and the reader. And so actually what I'm, we're doing is having two versions, right? There's going to be a more detailed version for like the encyclopedia family version, right? That has all the details that my dad wants to write. And then there'll be the publication version that's kind of... Um, It's not much shorter, but at least it's a little bit more polished and uh, as succinct as possible within reason. As someone who's worked in 
writing and editing for a good chunk of his professional career. I was I was chuckling at that because I've been in both seats. I've been the writer where I've submitted something and an editor you know, wants to take some things out or maybe rearranges a couple things. I'm like, no, 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 like that's my work. It's too important. It's got to go in that way. But I've also been an editor where I've gotten like stream of consciousness from a writer and you're like, there's some great stuff in here, but no one's going to be able to follow it in this form. So we've got to give it some shape. And those conversations are always difficult because I think a lot of writers are just very, or any storyteller really, like they want the story to come out as, as they intended. And they're afraid that, you know, it could, it could get altered in a, in a way that's not getting, you know, in this case, the, the lesson across that he wants to impart upon people. Exactly, exactly. And I think when you're so detail oriented, right. And when you're, when you have such a vivid um, memory, then it's kind of like you've written it. And so, you know, when something's missing and you're like, but this detail is missing and that detail is important to you. But for the person that's reading it, that detail, they don't know about it. So they don't know it's missing. And so just trying to convey that. Um, but you know, you find the happy medium at the end of the day. And my dad, he's just, um, he's happy that we're getting to the finish line of this project and he's been amazing to work with. And I've learned so much about him um, along the way. Before writing all of these stories down for the book, was your dad ever a writer at any point of his life? Did he keep journals or just things for himself that he hoped would get passed down? Or did this project really spur him to get all these stories that are in his head and that you've probably heard hundreds of times you know, out into a more permanent document that would outlast him? Exactly. So my dad is definitely more of an oral person. He is always telling stories and a lot of these stories i've heard but and we've heard um, my family has heard but we just never could commit it to memory because it's so much detail and it's so many stories that he tells us so um it was one of those things that i don't think my dad until i gave him the idea to write a book i don't think that was on his radar it was more mm -hmm. like if i share my stories with my children they'll be able to share it with their children and amongst each other and it's just really, it's a different, it's a generation gap. And maybe there's a cultural gap too, but in Eritrean culture, and, and maybe that applies to the U.S. culture of a previous generation too, but it's, that's the way stories are passed on, right? There was a less reliance on writing and stories, family stories and journeys and funny stories and lessons. They were all passed down just through, you know, mealtime stories, coffee time stories, um, road trip types of uh, stories that are told. And then, you know, then you have it, you know, you commit it to memory and you share it, uh, you add your stories and you share it to the next generation. But I just realized, I would say like, anytime my dad starts telling a story, I'm like, oh yeah, I remember this one. But I remember that he's told it to me before, but I can't remember all the details. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the more you hear it, the more you recollect and you, you remember more of it. But there's just no way we could remember all those details until it was committed to memory. But now the thing is, at the same time, my dad has been great with like some photos and other things like that, right? That he just kind of wanted to say. And in that form, in that way, um, not that he had a lot of photos from when he was young, but it's great that he was able to kind of um, keep those things that we can now include in the book. As you were helping your dad put the book together and you're going through all of these stories that he's written down. Were there any in there that you had never heard or that 
details emerge that you hadn't heard before that caught you off guard or surprised you in some way? Yeah, I think there were two stories and, um, you know, I mean, two stories and they relate to my grandparents on my dad's side, right? So for my, mm-hmm. I knew that my grandfather, Sibhatu Kaflesky, um, died when my dad was 12 years old and it was an unexpected death. But learning that it was through a snake bite that my grandfather died, it was like, man, you know, it's it, it just that context really it was um, something I knew that my grandfather had died while my dad was very young and that my dad had to take on a lot of responsibilities, but I didn't know the whole context and kind of reading about it was like, man, it's, you know, it's uh, so unfortunate, right? Maybe, and my dad writes, you know, unfortunately we didn't have the medic medicine available to um, keep my, you know, my grandfather alive. So that was one that was interesting. And then, unfortunately, you know, both of those stories that I'm, I'm about to mention deal with death. But the second story is just about the way my um, grandmother uh, on my dad's side, Tabet uh, to the way she died and the way my dad found out. And basically, he was in the capital city and my grandmother was in her village. And um, my father was just working his butt off in the capital city of Asmara and trying to really provide for his family, you know, because his father had passed already and he was kind of just um, the selected one to live in the capital city and try to, you know, make some money and support the family. And he was doing his very best and he wanted to spend Easter with the family because he was kind of working a lot around the clock. And uh, unfortunately, before he got a chance to spend Easter with his family and kind of um, have his, his, um, mother enjoy the fruits of her labor and her sacrifices uh she passed away so just and then i spoke to my dad just a few days ago i was like dad you know it was powerful and emotional when i read about your mom and he got very emotional he said to this day i'm emotional about it and so just kind of um going through those stories and learning about the details you know kind of sometimes you Mm -hmm. know the timeline but you don't know all the context Mm -hmm. that's been um Interesting and powerful, to be honest with you. How's the book structured? Is it just a collection of stories that follow a certain theme? Is it chronological? I'm curious how you took these 700 pages of written stories from your dad and put them into a coherent volume. Yeah, so it's chronological and it kind of just follows my dad's journey, right? From Mm -hmm. different parts of Eritrea, you know, being a shepherd when he was a boy to kind of going into the capital city and finding odd jobs to support himself and then working at a grocery store and then, um, you know, having to go back, you know, getting married. I mean, basically it's just chronological. And the interesting thing is, you know, my dad is a very proud father. Right. Mm -hmm. And I assumed like when he was going to write this book, it would be all about, you know, the things that everybody else writes about my family and my dad. Right. Like, the Kafleski family, the American dream, and, you know, what all these kids, you know, his kids have done. And there's definitely that, but the majority of it is just the journey to that point, right? To the point of the United States. And, you know, the, all the stories in the United States are included there, but it's kind of like the journey that only he could tell. And so that was mm-hmm. fascinating to me just because, you know, he's very proud about everything and everybody, but he's also proud of the journey 
you know, and, and not only proud, but also he knows how important it is to know and not forget your roots. And I'm so glad my dad was able to include all of that. And, you know, I keep talking about my dad, you know, it's his book and it's his legacy, but, you know, my dad is always so quick to give credit to uh, my mother, Awadash, just for everything along the journey, you know, everything that she's done along the way and so many other wonderful people um, along his journey. So, you know, this is kind of a moment that I want to uh, give my dad the flowers he deserves, but, you know, there's definitely been a lot of people, including my amazing mother that have been part of his journey. It's interesting to hear you say that because to me, that's the Kafleski way. As long as I've known you and your brother, Meb, and I've been fortunate enough to meet your parents on a couple occasions, you are all quick to give credit to those who have helped you along the way in your respective journeys. And that's something that's always made a very big impression on me. Uh, thanks. It's really, you know, we've been very fortunate along the way, you know, um, whether it's in, in Eritrea, in Italy, and in the United States, we really have had some amazing people be part of our journey and support us along the way. And, you know, it's also good karma, right? So my mom and dad, you know, they did all they can. My dad is the kind of person that he never thought about retirement and said, okay, I got to save this much money for my retirement, right? He just, whatever he had to give, as long as he's not putting his kids in a bad situation, he would give and give and give. And one of the lessons I've learned is like, the more you give, the more you receive, because I've definitely seen that from my dad's perspective. And so... It's, it's, um, yeah, it's really like, you don't do it. You don't give to receive, but you know, when you're a recipient, right. When you are the recipient of opportunities and blessings and, um, just generosity, then, you know, you feel an obligation to do what you can moving forward. So, you know, at a certain point, if you have enough success, it's good to give back in whatever way possible. And it's not always just money, right? Time talent or treasure, right? Whatever you can afford, whatever God has blessed you with, it's good to give. And, and then there's actually, you know, my dad's book has all of these amazing sayings, uh, like proverbs, uh, things that are said within the Eritrean culture and tradition. And one of the traditions is, um, okay, so I won't mess it up in Tigrinya, so I'll say it in English. <laughs> um, to who, to he who has given or done something for you, either do a good deed in return or let the world know about that deed. So basically just that's your way of saying things. If somebody does something for you, either return the favor or let the world know about what that person has done for you. And then you've met your obligation, you know, return a favor to that person or another person, or just let people know what that person has done. And it's just kind of like, don't, don't uh, not acknowledge when somebody does something for you, it's important that that person knows and that other people know what that person has, what another person has done for you. I love that. That's such an incredible life lesson. One thing you said a few minutes ago that jumped out at me and I've witnessed firsthand is just how proud your father is of your family and each person in your family. And I'll never forget, I believe it was 2011. I know Meb was a free agent in terms of sponsorship at the time because he was racing the rock and roll San Diego half and he just wore a generic USA jersey and I know he had no sponsorship. He was just wearing his old racing flats at the time, but he won the race and it's your family's adopted hometown 
of San Diego. The whole Kofleski crew is there. Meb crosses the line and your dad is just ecstatic. And I remember, I mean, so this was 10 years ago. So he was in his mid seventies and your dad, mm -hmm. just to paint a visual, like he's a pretty, I don't want to say Im imposing because that gives a, ne a negative um, <laughs> connotation, but he's like, he's a big man. Uh, he yeah, has a presence yeah. about him. And I remember he just grabbed his son, Meb, and he just hoisted him up and we're celebrating his his win in front of in front of the family and you could just see the pride like just on his face and and throughout your entire family really but that just like that moment is just kind of etched in my mind in, in the best way yeah absolutely it's actually something that my dad started at the footlocker cross-country championships when meb was a senior in high school and he finished second at that uh footlocker cross-country championships were which were held in san diego mm -hmm. and dad did the same thing, put him on his shoulder and just, you know, hoisted him up and um, just celebrate it. Right. Second place is, you know, as long like my dad is proud, you know, of the effort, right. not just first place or 10th place. Right. He's, you know, happy with um, anybody that gives it their best effort. And then, yeah, he would, you know, obviously, yeah, you got that description perfect in terms of what he did after rock and roll San Diego. And he would tell me like, yeah, give me, Give me right at the finish line of the New York City Marathon and the Boston Marathon. That's what I want to do for my son. I want to pick him up when he finishes. And that's just, you know, uh, sometimes we're able to do that. Sometimes we aren't. But my dad, that that would be the joy that he would have. He could just be at the finish line to celebrate with, uh, with Matt. I love it. Last little bit on the book before we pivot and talk about some other topics. You mentioned how... If nothing else, this is a record for your family to have and pass down through the generations, but it is going to be available for purchase and readers can pick it up. But who is the audience that you guys have in mind for this book once it's available for resale? Yeah, so it's really – the audience is um, you know, as many people as possible. So when I've spoken to my dad, I said – you know, so this is all going to be for good causes, right? Um, it's not for my profit or my dad's profit. My dad said, you know what? I've been so blessed. I want to use my story to raise money for others. And the causes that he wants to support are there's um, martyrs families in Eritrea um, that are family members um, of people that were lost during the war of independence in the border dispute with Ethiopia. So these are people that have lost the breadwinner in their families. And so my dad feels like, you know, he's a very proud Eritrean American. He's very proud of it, his Eritrean roots. And he's like, without the sacrifices of these individuals, I would not have the ability to be a proud Eritrean and a proud Eritrean American. So he wants to give back and support some of these families that, um, you know, don't have uh, the support that they need. And because these individuals sacrifice their lives, for the sake of the Eritrean um, independence and sovereignty. So that's one of the causes he wants to also support African-American students here in the United States. And so really that is the motive, right? It's, it's twofold. One is inspiring and motivating people, whoever can read it, you know, whether it's uh, a young Eritrean American, whether it's an Eritrean going through life in Eritrea or, you know, other immigrants, right. That have, come to the United States 
so really we try to make it, especially with it being in Tigrinya and in English, try to reach as many people as possible and inspire and motivate people, but at the same time, raise some money for a great cause. Where can people listening to this conversation learn more about the book and purchase it? Yeah, the best place to learn more about the book and also purchase it is on kaflesky.com. So it's just uh, the spelling is K-E-F as in Frank, L-E-Z-I-G-H-I, and uh, .com. So kaflesky.com will be the place where you can purchase it starting on March 5th. Well, that's great. I'm excited to check it out. I can't wait to get my hands on a copy and just learn more about not only your dad, but your family history and just a lot of the lessons that he's been able to impart upon you and that he's been generous enough to share with the rest of us. Thank you. Howie, interestingly, I've always thought of you for some reason as the youngest Kafleski. And in my research, I realized you're actually the sixth of 11 kids. And I'm wondering, what was life like for you growing up in such a big family? Yeah, so it's interesting because, yeah, when Meb and I are out and about, you know, we get the question sometimes, is it just the two of you guys? And we're like, no, no, no. <laughs> you know, it's much bigger than just the two of us. Um, so, yeah, I am so lucky to be a middle child, you know, because what happens, at least in my experience as being the middle child overall, is, you know, before my younger siblings were, were born, I was one of the little ones. Me and my younger brother, Bemnet, who's a few years younger than me, we were like, you know, the ones that were the annoying little brothers and then also the ones that kind of were spoiled and, you know, taken care of. And then um, over the years, right, we never, like all 11 siblings never lived in the same household at the same time, right, just because mm -hmm. of the age difference. And so towards the, you know, when I was in high school, I was like the oldest in the family. So I had to look, you know, uh, kind of be the big brother for my younger siblings. And now... I'm the middle child, right? So now I feel like I am the the bridge between my older siblings and my younger, you know, my younger siblings. And I've really, um, I've enjoyed it because I've got to experience everything, you know, being the oldest in the household, even though I'm not the oldest in the family, mm -hmm. uh, the youngest in the family, in the middle. And I just, uh, for me, it's a great place to be. And, you know, it's really, I also feel like I'm passing on the torch to a certain degree because my Older siblings did an amazing job of paving the road. So with, you know, my older siblings, they really came to the United States at an age where it's much harder to learn English than for me, right? I came to the United States. I was in the second grade. I learned, you know, I was able to learn very quickly. And so I didn't have the same challenges uh, with the language and with the adaptation or assimilation that my older siblings did. Um, but then, you know, I still had enough of my Eritrean roots where, um, you know, I I don't necessarily remember all the details of life in Eritrea, but I had a taste of it and I could really appreciate life in the United States and not take it for granted. Mm -hmm. And so I was able to, and I, uh, I try, you know, whether I'm able to or not, I try to really uh, share as much perspective and context with my younger siblings. What's the age range between the oldest and the youngest Kafleski kids? Yeah, so let us see. Uh, my oldest sister, Ruth, you know, I don't know if she wants me to tell her age. <laughs> she's uh, early 50s. And okay. then um, my youngest brother, Admokom, is going to turn 
27 this uh, month. What's the difference between you and Meb? We're four years apart, and we have a sister in between us, my sister Bahagi. What was your relationship like with your older brother Meb when you were growing up? Yeah, so with Meb, you know, like I remember, especially when I was in middle school, I really looked up to Meb, right? Um, He just, um, I really felt like for me as a young young boy, Meb gave me so much hope, you know, and sometimes hope, even if it's not realistic hope, it just takes you to the next day, takes you to the next month and the next year. So I actually remember around 1996, right? So Meb was at that point at UCLA and I was probably like a freshman in high school or or sophomore in high school. Mm -hmm. And I would think like, oh my gosh, if Meb makes the Olympics, we're all going to be set. You know, we're all going to be set. You know, I used to have this illusion that if you're an Olympian, you're a millionaire, right? And I didn't really think about the money, but you just think like, okay, you made it big time and everything else is set. And so I had this illusion that if Meb makes the Olympic team, and this was around 1996 before he even actually made the team, but that, you know, we'd be set. And just that hope, right? Even though that was not realistic, that... Now I know that just because you make the Olympic team doesn't mean you're a millionaire um, and just how difficult it is to make the team. And just because one, the athlete is set doesn't mean the rest of the family is set for life. You know, now I have this really better understanding. But when I was young, I used to kind of like that's where Map gave me hope, right? Even if it's not like realistic. And now I'm a realist, of course. But when you're young, you just need something to hope for and dream for. And Map was definitely the the person that gave us so much hope, at least for me, I can speak for myself. He gave me a lot of hope because, you know, we grew out, we grew up with a lot of, without a lot of resources. You know, we were in low income housing, we received public assistance. And so just to see that my older siblings kind of paved the road for me. And I said, all right, if I can, um, if my older siblings can come to the United States, you know, in middle school and high school and get into the university system, in the United States, there's no reason I can't do that. So they just kind of make the road a little bit easier. And Matt being, you know, who he is and getting some of the limelight, he he was a great, um, I would say, older brother for me because he would tell me like, hey, there's this upward bound program that he mm-hmm. couldn't do. And it's for first generation, um, for students that would be first generation college students, right? And Matt, because of his track and field schedule in high school couldn't be part of that program. But he told the recruiter for that program, you know, you should recruit my uh, younger brother. And several years later, they recruited me. And that was a very, just like an amazing program for me to prepare for college. So Meb was always looking out for me, you know, from (laughs) when we were young in, uh, in San Diego to when I was in college at UCLA, we were there together. And then definitely, you know, as a, as a professional, right, as him being a professional athlete and me being his agent, he opened the door of opportunity for me to represent him and make a way for me to make a living and support my family. I don't want to skip over too much, but how has your relationship with Meb evolved, particularly over the past 15, 16 years as you've worked together in a professional capacity? 
Yeah, I would say, you know, we were very, very close, especially those UCLA years. Um, you know, that's the first time we went to the same school at the same time um, because Meb was a fifth-year senior who was adding a business specialization to his communication studies major. I was a freshman at UCLA. And, you know, we had two-hour rides, you know, when we would go back to San Diego to visit our family and back to UCLA. And during those drives, you talk about everything, right? And so I got to know him, well, even better, right? And he got to know me even better. And we became best friends. And we would talk about everything, right? And he gave me insight into the running world, right? And um, the professional running world. But that was just as his little brother and maybe uh, just somebody to bounce ideas off of. And, and we would talk about everything else in life. And I would say, like, slowly as we started working in more of an official capacity, we're still brothers. We'll always be brothers and we're always going to be able to talk about anything. But more and more of our time is, is dedicated to talk about business, right? Because that is my, you know, Meb can have a lot of friends and he has a lot of siblings, but he only has one agent. And luckily I have a team of um, colleagues that can also help and assist and they do that with Meb. But at the end of the day, we got to take care of business. So there is a little bit of a evolution but at the end of the day, like we can stop talking business anytime and just talk about family. Um, and so it's, it's a fluid situation. And I think we know how to turn it on and off just naturally and organically. You mentioned a little while ago how you were in the second grade when you came to the U.S. from Eritrea. What do you remember about your early childhood in Eritrea that you still think about today? Yeah, so actually, so between Eritrea and the United States, um, we spent a year and a half in Italy. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I always say like in the first eight years of my life, I, I was in three different continents, you know, in East Africa, in Europe, and in the United States, and, and in North America. So the things were changing so quickly, the language, the culture, um, you know, the food, everything. And so... It was a lot of transition, to be honest with you. And when you're young at that age, you pick up things quickly and you mm -hmm. forget it quickly also. So when we first went to um, Italy, like I picked up the Italian language very, very quickly, but I almost started losing my knowledge of Tigrinya. And then when we came to the United States, like I lost my Italian very quickly. And luckily because of my mom and dad um, and some Tigrinya school on Saturdays, I was able to retain the knowledge of Tigrinya, you know, um, and so that was important. But one other thing that I remember from Eritrea, and I don't remember much, I kind of, um, obviously I've heard a lot of stories and sometimes you start imagining like those stories that you experience them yourselves. But mm -hmm. the one thing I do remember about Eritrea is my best friend, Musie. And it was years and years later, because no matter what, I could never forget Musie, my best friend. And many, many years later, I realized, oh my gosh, my best friend Musie was actually my cousin Musie. Right. And I didn't really make that connection when I was young. He was just my best friend. And much later, I realized, oh, my gosh, my best friend was also my my cousin. Did you guys ever end up reconnecting down the road? Oh, my cousin? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's the person I feel like it really humbles me when I remember um, my cousin, Musia, because he could be where I am and I could be where he is. We're the right. same age. You know, we grew up in the same village for the first, you know, six years of my life. And seriously, like 
it's it's um opportunity and chance and a lot of other things right there's a lot of things that each of us do to take advantage of the opportunities we're presented with but not all of us are given the same opportunities and so really remembering my cousin Moussier you know other cousins but especially Moussier because we had a strong bond I realized like man I'm not any smarter I'm not any better I'm not any hard hardworking than I am than my cousins in Eritrea and other people around the world that just don't have the same opportunities. So, you know, I'm very appreciative of my work ethic and my, you know, anything that I can attribute to myself, but it's not unique. It's not different. There's millions of people with the same type of work ethic and passion. They just don't have the opportunities. Uh, but yeah, I'm still in touch with my cousin Lucier and, you know, it's hard to stay in touch with all of my cousins because we do have a lot of family both here in the United States and in Eritrea. But I, you know, that's the person I feel like I can't, you know, be out of touch for too long with him. You know, that's that's a part of my story and my my being. What was life like for you as an immigrant child when your family settled here in the U.S.? Yeah, so. I mean, I remember taking some ESL courses, um, like English as a second language. I think that was probably when I was in second and third grade. Um, you know, I mean, I, I wouldn't say bullying, but just a little bit of like, you know, you always have a class clown that wants to make jokes and things like that. And I just feel like, you know, there's definitely that element, right? Anytime you're different, right? Uh, your hair looks different or uh, you're short or whatever it is it's easy for young people to make fun of another person. So, you know, I would say there was some of that, um, but I really feel very fortunate because um, I think that was just kids being kids, to be honest with you. It wasn't this kind of like systematic situation that, you know, others that go through in, in the United States and in life, it was just like kids being kids, right? And not extreme bullying or anything like that. And um, yeah, that was just part of my journey. But for Mev, he kind of mentioned how running was his his bridge to assimilate and make friends and become popular. And for me, it was basketball. Obviously, I never became the athlete that Mev is, but basketball was just seriously like something, still my first love, and it really helped me make friends. And um, I really enjoyed playing the sport and introduced me to a lot of people and helped me kind of um, just um, – yeah, I mean, it's still not only do you, do you love the sport, but you love the, the people in the sport also. Did you play a lot of pickup as a kid growing up? I did. I did. So I would, uh, you know, definitely during recess and lunchtime, you know, at school. And then when I was in the fifth, sixth and seventh grade, I would go to the local rec center, play pickup. We would have a like a rec team, recreational center team. And so I played organized basketball up until the ninth grade. I made the freshman team at San Diego High School for San Diego High School. And then in the 10th grade, I tried out for the JV team. And mind you, I was probably five feet tall in the 10th grade. So I was a, a late bloomer. And, you know, I thought I was one of the best basketball players, but I just didn't have the size. And I was probably very much underweight. I just have a fast metabolism. And so I didn't make the team in the 10th grade. And that was very disappointing because I knew at least from my perspective, there were people that were less talented than me, but, you know, people that made that team. And so that was a little bit disappointing, but I became a student manager for that high school team, for the varsity team. 
And in that one year sitting on the bench, you know, with a coach and, you know, keeping stats, I learned probably more about basketball in that one year than all the years combined that I have played the sport. So it's kind of like, you know, that journey. Uh, you never know where it's going to take you, but I'm so glad I, I fell in love with the sport. And now I would say I don't play basketball much now. And for the last 10 years, I realized, uh, yeah, it, I should because I love the sport, especially when I'm fit. Um, but I'm so glad the sport was introduced to me because I've made so many friends along the way. Um, I ended up being a student manager for the UCLA basketball team, made a lot of friends that way. And still something that, you know, like running is a passion. I love it as a sport. I love to watch the sport and watch the athletes compete, but also have vested interest in the sport. Whereas with basketball, I can just watch the game and enjoy it. Well, next time we're in the same place, I'm going to find a ball and a court and we are just going to go play some one-on-one, maybe a little pig or some horse or something like that. So I, I knew you loved basketball. I know you're a big LA Lakers fan. I knew that you were the student manager at UCLA. I didn't realize that you played so much as a, as a kid growing up and I'd love to shoot around with you next time we're together. Let's do it. I'd love to. Who were some of your role models growing up aside from your older brother, Meb? Yeah, so I would say um, I am a big fan of Rayford Johnson, uh, who was a gold medalist in the decathlon in uh, 1960, and he's a UCLA Bruin. So I remember reading about him and watching videos about him and then going to UCLA. And I think I was might have been like a freshman in college, and I went to the UCLA track and field athletic uh, uh, banquet, track and field banquet. And Meb was getting an award, you know, obviously he gave a speech. And I remember that was the first day I met Rayford Johnson in person. And um, uh, Rayford Johnson's son, Josh Johnson, was teammates with Meb, and he was a javelin thrower. And, I mean, seriously, I read his book, The Best I Can Be, and while I was a freshman at UCLA, and I was like, man, like, this person who has achieved so much is so humble. And I just respected and admired that about him so much very soft-spoken, but did so much in the community and just just a tremendous role model. So that was definitely one of the people that I looked up to and he passed away um, just a, a couple months ago, unfortunately. But he's left an amazing legacy, both, I would say, in the Olympic space, at UCLA, of course, and in the Special Olympics, uh, which he was um, very much involved with. And then, um, you know, Coach John Wooden, you know, being a UCLA person, uh, I have that UCLA bias, but I had the honor of meeting Coach John Wooden briefly also. And just the same thing as Rayford Johnson, you know, so accomplished yet so humble. And for me, that is something that's like my soft spot. If somebody is successful and yet humble and treats people just like they want to be treated, and there's a lot of people in our sport of track and field and basketball and in the world that are like that. But, you know, I think Rayford Johnson and Coach John Wooden are at the very top. Did you always know that you wanted to go to UCLA or did Meb going there a few years ahead of you sort of steer you in that direction? Yeah. So when um, Coach uh, Bob Larson and Coach Eric Peterson came and visited Meb at our house, um, I would say they were there to recruit Meb. And they came with a VHS tape, put it in, and in that video, seriously, I, I, I'm sure my parents were watching it along with Meb. I know I was there. 
I'm assuming my sister Bahagi was there. And they were recruiting Matt, but they got <laughs> both me and my sister Bahagi <laughs> and my younger siblings who also wanted to go to UCLA. So they got a three for one because once, I mean, seriously, there's so many amazing universities here in the United States. I have a UCLA bias, but when you watch that video and you're talking about Coach John Wooden, um, Rayford Johnson, Bill Walton, um, I mean, we can go, I mean, Jackie Joyner Kersey, Yep. Uh, Jackie Down Robinson, all these amazing student athletes, but then also all Arthur Ashe. It's really it's inspiring and motivating, and it's hard to say no, right, uh, to UCLA if you have the opportunity to go there. So basically, you know, Meb went there, um, just you know, and then my sister Bahagi went there, and she ended up going to medical school there also. And then when it was my time to choose, I was really close to going to Berkeley for some reason, you know? I don't know what it was, but I was really going close to going to Berkeley. And one of my classmates was like, you're crazy for not going to UCLA, you know? You got your brother there. He'll take care of you. And I always knew that, but it was kind of like, you know, I like to be independent and explore all the options. And then, but I'm so glad I went to UCLA because it, you know, it's, it was great for me um, in so many different ways. I mean, Meb... I give him a lot of credit. Meb is not the kind of person to give handouts, but he opened a lot of doors. He's the person that got me connected with UCLA basketball. Uh, he's the person that um, just did so much, uh, helped me get my first job at UCLA. And so those are things that not everybody has that privilege. And I'm glad I was smart enough to say like, hey, not to go there and be dependent on that, but just to say like, hey, there's some synergies, right? To have family and not be completely um, isolated from your family. It is, there's value there. And so I did end up going to UCLA. And so I would joke and say, Coach Larson and Coach Eric Peterson, that <laughs> video recruited at least three Kapanskis to UCLA. Master recruiters, those guys. Yeah, yeah. Only one on scholarship. So we did have to pay the rest <laughs> of us. <laughs> it's like a two for one deal, kind of. Exactly. <laughs> uh, did you know what you wanted? to study when you went to UCLA? So when I went to UCLA, I was intrigued by computer science. So mm -hmm. this is um, 1998 is when I graduated from high school. And, you know, everybody was talking about Y2K and things like that at that time. And I was like, hey, maybe I can have a future in computer science. You know, that's the way the future is going. So I was, I applied undeclared but I was taking some programming classes, computer programming courses to see if I could go into computer science. And very quickly, I realized that wasn't the major for me. You know, I just realized I'd rather interact with people than just computers. Um, I learned that probably after my first year. And then I attended um, Meb's graduation and he was a communication studies major. And during the graduation, they used that platform to kind of talk about the major and the studies and research that they were doing. And I kind of fell in love with that. And I was really searching. And so it kind of spoke to me and I went that route. And so I majored in communication studies and I minored in African-American studies while I was in UCLA. Eventually you went on to law school also at UCLA. When did you decide that was going to be the next step for you after your undergrad years? Yeah. So while I was an undergrad, I love the communication studies major, but I really didn't do any internships uh, other than, you know, being a student manager for the UCLA basketball team. So I started to panic around my, like, going into my fourth year. 
I'm like, oh my gosh, what kind of job am I going to get? And so I think that panic made me think about what's next. And at that point, you know, I had just, you know, I was finishing up my third year with the UCLA basketball team. I had become good friends with a lot of the basketball players um, and especially Earl Watson, um, who I'm still, you know, good friends with. And I thought about, you know, becoming an agent in the sport of basketball. And so in L.A. around that time, it seemed like everybody was interested in being involved in sports and entertainment. So I felt like I had to distinguish myself from, you know, from other candidates that wanted to get involved in sports and entertainment. So I decided, okay, what, you know, not only do I have a good network, but let me go to law school. And maybe in law school, you know, after getting a law degree, I can, you know, become a good candidate and maybe, you know, start representing some basketball players. And so that was the spark that led me to law school. It was definitely to become an agent, but in the sport of basketball, not running. And during my second year in law school is when MEB won. Um, actually, towards the end of my first year in law school is when MEB won the silver medal in the Olympics in Athens in 2004. And at that point, MEB um, felt like he needed a U.S.-based agent. And, you know, I was always an informal advisor to him as a little brother. And we were talking and he gave me his contracts to review. One thing led to another. And the more conversations he and I had the more of his contracts that are reviewed and the more confidence I gained from law school and especially a sports law clinic that I was taking. I finally said like, Matt, you know, and we were exploring us based agents and weighing the pros and cons. But I also said, Hey, Matt, I think, um, you know, I gained enough confidence to ask him to see if, you know, maybe I could represent him. And at that point, Matt weighed the pros and cons and, for two months, I think for almost two months, we, we would have these conversations just to explore it, do our due diligence. And right when I was ready to like throw up my hands and say, hey, Matt, just for your consideration, no problem. If you don't hire me, he was like, let's do this. And that was, uh, you know, in 2005 and I've been working together ever since. Have you ever had any other job after law school besides representing Meb and I mean now a whole slew of athletes in the sport of track and field yeah only for about six months in 2009 from about February to August of 2009 I worked for Ashford University which is an online university in their admissions office because you know when I first started representing in, in Meb in 2005 and also represented John Rankin at that time, you know, things were off to a great start. And, you know, Meb finished uh, third in New York in 2005. He finished third at the Boston Marathon in 2006 in his first Boston Marathon. And then um, 2007 was a rough year. And yep. 2008 was a rough year for Meb. You know, he was injured. He was kind of rehabbing. He didn't run any marathons in 2008. And I had gone you know, thankfully, you know, built up some savings over the first couple of years of representing Matt. But, you know, 2007 and 2008 were rough years. So I kind of, my savings dwindled. And so I was like, man, I need to get me a job. And luckily I was able to get a job at Ashford University working nine to five and still representing Meb and trying to build up my agency. And I just, by August, 2009, I realized like, this is not what I want to do. Right. Ashford was great, but it's not what I was passionate about. So I was like, let me give it one more push. And I went to the world championships 
with my friend Rob Hill um, in Berlin. And, you know, later in November, November 1st, Meb won the New York City Marathon. And that was just amazing. It kind of gave me an opportunity to kind of, you know, rebuild the agency, right? And rebuild my savings and put myself in a good situation and really focus 110% on Meb and uh, the agency. So, yeah, I mean, other than that six-month period, I've been working (laughs) as an agent full-time since 2005. Aside from early on when it was Meb and John Rankin, when did it really start to expand in terms of the number of athletes that you were representing and the point at which you had to hire on some more help? Yeah, so early on, I really enjoyed working with Meb, John Rankin, Peter Gilmore, uh, Stephen Shea, Paige Higgins. And that was great because it was just kind of like, hey, yeah, I had the bandwidth to help a few more athletes, right? But then what I realized is like, you know, when you're a one-man operation, it's tough trying to do everything, especially after Meb won the New York City Marathon. Then things got busy. And then when Meb won the Boston Marathon in 2014, things got extremely busy. And so at that time, I said, all right, I know Meb's going to retire soon, eventually. So I need to prepare. And I was thinking like, okay, is this the end of the road? And do I pursue a corporate job? Or do I, you know, maybe do a business venture with Meb? Or do I double down on the agency? And that's right around the time I started working with Leo Manzano. And we worked together and he had a, a new Hoka sponsorship and partnership, which was great. And at that point, uh, and Leo was very, very um, complimentary in saying that, you know, I was doing a good job. And I said, wow, this is scalable. What I could do for Leo, I could do for more athletes. And let me go ahead and expand the agency. And at that point, then I realized, like, one thing I want to do if I'm going to expand the agency is build the infrastructure first. And mm-hmm. so in the very beginning of 2015, I brought on John Rickey, who I had gotten to know for over the, over the years with his work at the NYAC track and field program. And yeah, you know, I think at that point, maybe we had like five athletes. And at the end of the year, John is like, yeah, I think we can do, we can, you know, bring on, we can work with as many as 25 athletes. And I was like, no way, you know, (laughs) Uh, but seriously, I just didn't, you know, envision that really, but slowly and surely, you know, we grew and we, you know, now we have 40 athletes that we represent, but we also have three certified agents on our team and we have some part-time staff and some consultants. So it's been amazing. I would say like that, um, 2000 start starting in 2015, it's Howie 3.0, kind of like the third phase of building the infrastructure with John and Liam, uh, Liam fail. And then, you know, like recruiting athletes because I never wanted to recruit and then build a team. I wanted to build the team, build the infrastructure so that I could go to any possible recruit and say, look, I'm confident we can take care of you. Because um, I think sometimes there are agencies that, you know, recruit aggressively, but don't commit the same energy to, you know, serving their athletes. Continuing down that road, what do you think were the main drivers of that growth? Obviously, Meb had success. You just spoke a little bit about recruiting some of the athletes, but was there just more interest in general from the entire athlete pool that was out there? Yeah. So initially, the way we built that, the agency was, even after 2014, athletes were coming to us, right? 
And it was amazing athletes like, of course, Leo, Joe Kovacs, Boris Berrien. And that's so flattering, right? Because you're not recruiting them. They see what's going on with Mev. They, you know, word of mouth, and they're coming to us. And at that point, when you have, you know, such amazing athletes coming to you, then it's just a matter of seeing if there's a good fit or not. And, you know, we do our due diligence and they came on board. And so that was the first, it was just athletes, you know, that were either injured or things weren't working out with their previous agents. It wasn't college athletes coming to us. It was just veterans, right? People that had mm-hmm. been pros for a few years and were looking for a change in representation. And I'm not the type to step on any toes and recruit people that I already represent. You know, I never do that. But if they come to you and say, look, you know, I'm making a change and I want to explore working with you, then, you know, we have those conversations. So that's kind of like the way things were working out initially. And then we decided, hey, you know what? We have the infrastructure set and we have so many athletes coming to us that, you know, for whatever reason, it's not working out with their representation. Why don't we go ahead and recruit athletes out of college? And we started kind of playing with that a little bit in 2017, but 2018 was really the first year that we had a full game plan in terms of recruiting athletes out of college. And we were so fortunate to sign in that year, Katura Orji, who ended up being the um, Bowerman Award winner. So the best athlete in college track and field, uh, Nikki Hiltz, um, you know, who was mm-hmm. runner up in the NCAA championships. And then also Alice Wright from University of uh, New Mexico. Um, so it was just amazing. You know, we had, there was some receptivity, right? And you don't land all the clients or all the athletes you recruit, but we got some positive initial feedback. And we've been refining that process and have been able to sign some amazing athletes since then, including Rory Linkletter and um, Danny Jones, Futsum Zenislasie. You know, so some some amazing athletes, but it's it's kind of like the recruiting. When athletes are coming to you, it's easy, right? It's just a matter of seeing if it's a good fit. But when you're recruiting out of college, all the top agents are going after the same mm-hmm. 10 athletes or so, maybe 15 athletes, and it's super competitive. And so that's been interesting, an interesting process and a rewarding process to go through. I know that you're super selective about who you choose to work with, but what do you look for in an athlete who you're either interested in or is interested in having you and your agency represent them? Yeah. So a lot of times we'll get inquiries through email and it'll be athletes that are more sub elite than elites. So that's really hard to say no, because I would love to help as many athletes as possible, but we need to set a standard in terms of athletic performance and talent um, because, you know, that is important at the end of the day. So that's always tough because you want to help as many athletes as possible. And usually when athletes reach out to me, and this is something I've been doing maybe the last two or three years, when I know I can't represent them just because they haven't accomplished what it would take um, for us to help them with sponsorships and getting into meets, I usually provide a, a complimentary like consultation right just to give them some guidance so that they have a a running start because just because you don't have an agent doesn't mean you stop in the sport right right? and so just to give them some hope some encouragement and some guidance um 
But in terms of other athletes that are, you know, world-class that are, you know, we're going after or they're coming to us. I think the initial thing is I try to do my due diligence after the athletic performance, just making sure they meet that criteria. We look at, you know, interviews, articles, just to kind of get a sense of the athlete. And then we set up a call, right? And now more and more it's becoming a Zoom, which is great because you can kind of see the video interaction, but even some type of phone call or conference call and just see how the energy is, right? And um, I would say I'm very fortunate. Our agency is very fortunate to work with some amazing athletes, and I always put them on a pedestal. But, you know, if I'm honest, I feel like our sport is filled with great people, right? There's Mm -hmm. more good people than bad in our sport in terms of personalities. And so, but then at the same time, I give a lot of credit to our clients because it's almost like like like-minded athletes that are coming to Howie Management, right? People that see media opportunities as opportunities, not burden, right? So people that are want to inspire other people that want to provide a return on investment to their sponsors. So it's been amazing because like-minded athletes have kind of gravitated to Howie Management, which makes the selection process that much easier, right? If it's a fellow athlete or a fellow client that's recommending another athlete or a coach that we work with or a sponsor, that we might work, you know, that we work with and have a good relationship with. It's um, when you, when it's people that know you that are making recommendations, it's already, there's a, already like a, a screening process that's kind of right. inherent in that. Well, it's the culture that you've created. And at this point of your growth, if you're going to bring someone else into that, they've got to be the right fit for the culture. Absolutely. That, yeah, that's a great way, you know, in terms of, I think on the staff side with John and Liam, I'm so fortunate. Those are probably the best decisions I've made. They're amazing people that we've been able to build the agency, the culture with athletes first in mind, right? The athletes are the reasons we have jobs to begin with. And we, um, and we always tell our clients, we work for you. You don't work for us. And I think sometimes, you know, athletes get the sense that they work for their agents or their managers. And especially in some of the um, East African countries, but for us, you know, we give credit where credit's due. If the athletes don't have the deals they have, and of course we facilitate that, but we wouldn't be in the position that we are. And I'm glad that, you know, it doesn't matter if the founder of the company has that mindset, if the team and colleagues don't have the same mindset. So I'm glad uh, me, John, and Liam have the same uh, perspective. When you bring an athlete on, what do you look for in brands when pursuing partnerships for them? Yeah. Um, you mean in terms of like what kind of brands and partners, partners are we looking for those athletes? Yeah, because in the sport, this is getting to some inside baseball stuff, but there are certain agents out there who are known as, you know, a, an agent who works like almost exclusively with, with like one company or they know they can get their athletes a deal with another company. But one thing from afar that I've always appreciated about you and your approach is that you look out for the best interests of your athletes because you care about them as people and you want to see them thrive and succeed. But every every brand out there is a bit different and you certainly spread things around in terms of who your athletes are, are partnering with. But I wonder like what that process looks like when you have a new signee and you're pursuing opportunities for them in terms of partnership and, and sponsorship, how you go about it. Yeah. So that's a great observation, Mario, because for us, 
we really believe in making an informed decision and helping our clients, our athletes, get all the information so they can make an informed decision at the end of the day. And I, you know, we have great relationships with a lot of training groups and a lot of shoe companies and other sponsors. And I always tell them respectfully, I say, man, this relationship is very important to me and our agency, but just always know my duty is to my client, Mm -hmm. you know, and they appreciate that. To be honest with you, they're like, Hey, that's, we, you know, a lot of these companies and training groups, they don't want a bad fit. So they want, they want, they want a chance, right? I think some of the training groups and shoe companies, they just get frustrated if they don't have the opportunity to make a presentation, to make an offer, to give an athlete a chance to sign with them, right? And for us, we respect the athlete because the athlete also has preferences, right? Just sometimes it's informed preferences and sometimes it's uninformed, right? So at the end of the day, we try to help them go through the process so they can make an informed decision. And the process is thinking about, you know, do you want to train at altitude or sea level on a year-round basis? Um, you know, have you tried the footwear just to make sure, you know, some athletes are very, very particular about footwear and others aren't, you know? And so just making sure the athlete is comfortable with the footwear, the coach, the training team, the financial package, you know, a lot of times that's our duty to maximize the earning potential. But sometimes it's not just getting the most money, right? Finding the right package, um, the best package overall is the key. And so we just help them navigate that information and be as transparent as possible with them, that, especially the athlete, but then also the people that we are negotiating with or that we are having conversations with. Because if it's not a likely scenario for whatever reason, it's better to tell um, that entity, right? Just so that you're not wasting anybody's time. So I really, um, that's something I take a lot of pride in is just making sure that we explore all the options and we encourage the athletes to explore as many options as possible without getting overwhelmed because sometimes you do have to have a short list so you can do a thorough job. So that is, yeah, definitely. I'm glad you, you noticed that because at the end of the day, you know, we just want to make sure our athletes and our clients are making an informed decision and they're happy with the decision in every way, you know, um, performance, training group, coach, location, weather, product, and of course, the financial compensation. Mm -hmm. One thing that jumped out at me on your website when I was checking it out recently was a line that says, we create new lanes for the modern athlete. And I'd love for you to expand upon that for me. What is a modern athlete and what's in the job description for a modern athlete? Yeah, no. So, you know, on our website, I give a lot of credit to our social media and you know, web designer, uh, Zakia, and she's, you know, somebody that we have on our staff as a consultant. And she's been really great about taking our vision and putting it in visual format, right? And the website is reflection of that. And really the modern athlete is, it's not just performance-based, right? And there are obviously being a world-class athlete in chase the Olympic dream and Olympic medals, Performance matters, and that's very important. But nowadays, people have a platform, and they can do so much with that platform. And that is inspire and motivate people. Uh, they have social media, so they can engage with people and, and share their thoughts and hear feedback and <clears throat> support and promote their partners. 
Um, so there's so much that athletes can do nowadays. And sometimes there's ways once an athlete has a reach and an, and, um, an audience, then you can monetize that in different ways. Right. And it's not always about just monetizing every single, um, opportunity. Sometimes opportunities are just meant to be right. Um, and if there are opportunities to monetize it because an athlete is generally involved and interested in doing things in the community, great, let's make that work. But it's not all about the money. Because one thing I've realized about MED, and this is, there's so many lessons we've learned from working with MED that we can apply and benefit other athletes. And we never get to the position that we're trying to make everybody MED. You know, it's not like that at all. Everybody is different. Everybody's unique. But one thing we realize with MED is if you build the brand, the right opportunities will come your way. And then when you have the balance of pursuing opportunities actively and proactively and then building the brand so that the right opportunities can also come your way, then you're putting the athlete in the best position possible to build their brand, um, generate some revenue, and then also have a, have a platform to tell their story for their purposes, whether it's to inspire people, to encourage people, to motivate folks, um, so that's really the modern athlete, the way we see it is not just a shoe deal and that's it. You know, hopefully there's multiple partnerships for the athlete, but it doesn't come with like, it's, it's quality over quantity at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. It's not a, how many deals you have, how many products you're getting. It's more about finding, um, the right partnership and quality over quantity. It's interesting that you mentioned Meb as an example, because, it seemed to me that there was a very distinct turning point in his career. And it was after he won the New York City Marathon in 2009. I mean, obviously, that's a big win, especially being the first American male to win the race in so many years. But his Nike contract was also up at the end of that year, I believe. It was 2010 when he was without a sponsor for So it was the yeah, 2010 was the end of the Nike contract and then the beginning of 2011 is when Meb didn't have a footwear sponsor. And I feel like that was the beginning of the Meb brand as you just called it. And I mean, he picked up new sponsors, many new sponsors, but Meb as a brand was stronger than any of them. And I don't mean that in a, a bad way. I think he, you know, he helped elevate the profile of brands like Skechers and trying to think who else he was working with yeah, at the time. I mean, we did yeah. this photo shoot for a competitor. I remember we had him on the cover with a, uh, almost like a race car jacket and it had all his, all his sponsors on it at the time. But I, I remember like, for me as an observer of the sport, like that's when Meb's career really took off. I mean, he had done plenty of amazing things as an athlete before that, but it was after his Nike contract ended that he became, you know, a brand unto himself, but he also had more touch points within the community. He was at more events and there was just this buzz about him that hadn't existed, even though he'd done some amazing things as an athlete. Yeah. It's really, um, you know, sometimes people feel like it comes overnight, right? He won New York and then all of these doors opened. And obviously, when you have a big breakthrough, a lot of doors open. But it also takes relationships and strategy to take advantage of the opportunity and the moment. And I think for Meb, one thing like Skechers, 
deserves a lot of credit, right? And, you know, we give credit to Nike for supporting Mev, you know, the first, I think it was 12 years of his career and put, helping him get to the position where he was. And um, Skechers then stepped up and agreed with Mev and said, hey, Mev, if you feel like you can run PRs and you still think you can win Boston and New York, who are we to doubt you? And supported him along that journey. But not only did they support him financially and with amazing product that they helped, that Mev helped develop, along with the Skechers team, they also promoted him, put him in commercials, they put him on billboards, right? And that mm-hmm. made Mev even more valuable to other partners. So that was kind of like a positive snowball effect because then, you know, like Mev was really um, Skechers kind of putting Mev as their front and center ambassador just helped him, his reach and his brand build. And then we were able to create other partnerships uh, because people said, wow, if Skechers is behind this athlete, why can't we do it and support it? And, and also take advantage of that positive wave that Skechers created. So I, it's just, I think that's where it's so important to make sure people are aligned with their partners to see that everybody's going in the same direction. And, um, and it just, for Skechers, it was at the right time in their development as they were just starting to get into running and performance where they needed somebody like Meb. And Meb, you know, definitely needed Skechers at that point to take him to continue his development and his uh, chasing his dreams. So I am, it's just amazing how things worked out. And, and then he was able to reward all of his partners that stepped in in 2011 and 12 and beyond and win the Boston Marathon. And since then, you know, <laughs> more partners have come on board. But it's really, it's, uh, it's just been an amazing journey. And especially the other thing is not everybody has such a long career like Meb, right? So, you know, Meb is like, right when you start forgetting about him and his achievement, he'll win a New York Marathon or a Boston Marathon. And, you know, it's, you can't predict or expect a career like that. I think if any athlete has that, you have to kind of take it as icing on the cake and you have to kind of maximize the first few years or, you know, and of course we want everybody to have 15 year professional careers, but not expected. Right. And so you have to maximize the first two or three years and build your brand and create partnerships, especially the companies that invest in you out of college, give them a return on investment. One thing I would say, Mario, that's been such a blessing in our, for our agency and our clients this year and and especially you know coming off the pandemic is we only had one athlete that didn't resign with their sponsor you know and this is a time when a lot of companies are going through a lot of challenges um a lot of financial challenges and you know a lot of um uncertainty and because our athletes um have provided so much value not only in performance but also being ambassadors you know on social media and in other ways, most of our athletes were re-signed. And so that is something that I'm just so thankful to the sponsors that we work with and the athletes we work with, because that is not common in this day and age. How do you work with athletes? Meb is what made me think of this because his competitive career is over at this point. And Meb as a 
brand, I hate to call him that, but as a brand is still very, very strong. He still has sponsors. He's still doing work on their behalf. He's still very active in the sport. But with other athletes that you represent or have represented, what are the conversations like toward the end of their career when they're no longer able to compete or compete at the level that they once were, how you handle the next steps for them? Yeah, so that is actually some one of my passions is at the end of the day, I want these athletes and clients to have as much success during their professional athletic career, but then always be ready and prepared um, to make that transition. And if, you know, for Mev, he almost retired three times before he finally retired for real. And so he had a few opportunities to say, all right, let me make sure I'm better prepared. And finally, he was able to leave on his own terms. And sometimes with athletes, you don't get to leave on your own terms, right? There's injuries. There's so many different things. Or you don't make that Olympic team that you wanted to make, a world championship team. So, I mean, if you're blessed enough to make uh, leave the sport on your own terms, then you have time to kind of plan for it. But sometimes you don't leave the sport on your own terms. And it's important that you've taken steps to prepare for that transition. And so just yesterday... Um, I think it was actually it was on Tuesday evening, we had a webinar with um, for our clients, available to our clients with Lauren Williams, who's a certified financial planner and a former Olympian, winter and summer Olympic medalist, and uh, Tanisha Moore, who's an accountant uh, CPA. And they were talking about, you know, with our clients via Zoom, what, um, you know, planning for, um, retirement. And as Lauren says, two retirements. Athletes have two retirements. The first one is from their sport, and then they usually have a second career and then retire, you know, in their older age. And um, so I try to, and Tanisha had some amazing information about taxes and how to make sure you stay in compliance with the IRS and then also maximize your uh, tax savings. And so I try to provide as much information to the athletes so that not only are we getting them into competitions and they're, um, you know, have sponsorships, but also what can you do on your financial literacy and planning? And I don't know it all, right? Me, John and Liam, we don't know it all. So we try to put people um, in connection with our athletes that can share some of that information. And it's people we trust and respect, of course. And it doesn't mean you have to have, Lauren as a financial planner or Tanisha as an accountant, you know, we just want them to have this information and this guidance and then they can, we definitely trust the athletes to make informed decisions themselves. So, and then also I'm constantly talking to our athletes about what, what they want to do after running. Not that I want them to finish running or track and field or triathlon soon, but just what their passions are, because maybe there mm -hmm. is somebody I can connect them with that can help them in some capacity. Um, so, I, for me, like I think a good example is John Rankin. He was my second client after Med, and you know, to this day, we're still in touch. We're still very close friends. And um, he started he started a business. He before he started a business, he had you know several other jobs, and he would always utilize me as a reference. And so for me, I want to make sure I'm in touch with our clients even after they retire, and be there to help them transition because I feel like. If I can help them transition to life after their professional athletic career, then, you know, then I've done my duty. And it's not always easy and it's not always perfect, 
but just helping people so they don't feel like, all right, Howie management just used me for my athletic career and, you know, they don't want anything to do with me anymore. That could be, that's the farthest thing from the truth from our perspective. One thing about running and endurance sports in general is that it's notoriously secretive in terms of contracts and what athletes are making from their sponsors and then appearance fees. The only thing we ever really hear about is prize money because that's publicly available. Do you think that hurts the athletes and does a disservice to the sport in general? Yeah, I I think it does. Um, And I always like to try to clarify, you know, because people compare um, NBA team salaries, right? Like, hey, we know how much LeBron James makes from the Lakers. You know, that's public information. We can look at that. For every team, we know what the team salary, what the team pays each of the players. And we know what the league minimum is, and we know what the league maximum is. But that is completely different than the way our athletes make a living in uh, track and field. These are through endorsements. There aren't necessarily team salaries. Even though there's a team structure that's building, and I'm very excited to see how this evolves, but still, even when you're on the team, you're on an endorsement contract with the sponsor. And so I just want people to understand why there is that difference, right? That team salaries, it's it's a whole structure, right? That there's a collective bargaining agreement that sets out exactly what the team um, team salary maximum are and how much each player can get and what's the minimum. And I would love to have that structure, you know, or similar structure for track and field. Um, but we don't necessarily know how much LeBron James is getting from um, Nike. Sure, there's rumors and speculation, but those endorsement contracts are a little bit more guarded. And that's the way things are in track and field. These are all endorsement contracts. And endorsement contracts, usually the sponsors are a little bit more protective of that than the team salaries. So, but how can we kind of evolve and, you know, either build these team structures that have a little bit more public information on the team salaries or how do these endorsement contracts kind of evolve to be a little bit more transparent? And that's something that it takes a collective, right? It can't just be us athletes and agents saying we want everything to be revealed, right? we need to take the sponsor's perspective into consideration and see what hurdles and obstacles there are on their end. But I think ultimately if it was a little bit more transparent and legally you could say, yes, this is how much I make from this sponsor. If I could say that as an agent or my clients could say that as athletes without any legal repercussions, then it could be up to the athletes to make that decision and not be handcuffed because of the contract. So I think that would be beneficial, but we have to also make sure that it's it's mutually beneficial to the sponsors that are investing those dollars. How have some of the specifics of the contracts themselves, like in general, changed over the past like 10 or 15 years since you've been working as an agent? What I mean by that is in the past year or so, I mean, we've seen the headlines about how female athletes are treated at some companies in terms of maternity leave and maternity pay and what changes have taken place because of that. But I know that doesn't tell the entire story. So I'd love to get your perspective on how the contracts themselves have 
kind of changed to do more for the athletes or better protect them? Yeah. So I think the number of prospective sponsors in the footwear and apparel category has increased significantly. And I credit you a little bit, Mario, because I remember in 2000, around 2010, 2011, when Meb was looking for the right footwear partner and you were working at Competitor Magazine at that time. And you were doing a lot of I remember shoot. this conversation at the U.S. Cross Country Championships. All right. Good, good. <laughs> I thought I was the only one to remember, so I'm glad you remember too. And, and you really um, opened my eyes because, you know, we get accustomed to the same three or four or five shoe companies. And to be honest with you, it's usually three or four, especially at that time. And you were like, man, I'm doing shoe reviews for like 20 different, you know, shoe brands and shoe companies mm-hmm. and products. I was like, wow, there's that many shoe companies out there? And it was just like a wake-up call because then it's like, you know, when there's just a few brands, they know what they're – and it's the same athletes, same agents going after the same few brands. And it could be overwhelming as a brand representative. So I said, you know what, let's open this up and let's look at other emerging companies. And look at this. Hoka in 2014 was an emerging company and look at where they are now. Skechers was there in 2011, and mm-hmm. since then they've poured millions of dollars into the sport through event sponsorships, athlete sponsorships, um, advertising in you know different media outlets. And the same thing with Hoka on running, and we see Puma you know making even a bigger investment now. So that's really exciting to see all of these companies coming and seeing value in in the in the running industry right both sponsoring athletes events and advertising in media outlets both online and in print so that's really exciting and i think when that happens and athletes have more options it helps uh, improve the terms of the deals and of course um you know like you said there were reductions for pregnancies and other you know like uh, other reductions and now i would say where that used to be the norm, maybe five to 10 years ago, reductions were part, you know, big reductions were part of these contracts. Now there are several brands that don't have any reductions in their contracts. And it doesn't mean everybody's eliminated them, but there's a little bit more for people to choose from and to negotiate instead of saying, oh, this is just the way everybody is and I got to sign this contract. So that's been an amazing development to see. And then also, I mean, one thing I kind of see coming now is shoe companies are a little bit more or less likely to offer time bonuses or the same time bonuses as in the past because of everything that's going on with the shoe technology and rapid improvement of times. And um, so that's, you know, there's pros and cons to everything in the evolution cycle. That's super interesting. I hadn't heard that, but it makes plenty of sense as we've been seeing times drop in the marathon and on the roads in general over the past few years and more recently on the tracks almost like they're protecting themselves because their product is too good in some ways (laughs) yeah exactly along these lines i mean i've got to give you a lot of credit and i think it started with meb because he's the first athlete that i can think of in recent history who went beyond just the traditional shoe sponsorship. I mean, he signed with Skechers, still has a relationship with Skechers to this day, but he brought on nutrition sponsors. He had audio sponsors. He was partnering with some car brands at times. And I mean, that was not commonplace and still not really 
commonplace amongst professional athletes in track and field, but it's become more so. And you're seeing athletes getting smaller deals, whether it's eyewear, you know, whether it's, you know, audio headwear. I mean, certainly car companies. Has that shift been more prominent since 2010, 2011, when Meb went beyond his Nike deal? and signed with Skechers and a bunch of other brands that you saw it happening with other athletes and these non-endemic brands that previously weren't really that involved in running? Yeah, I think um, you're right. There has been more partnerships over the years. And I do, you know, I'd like to give Matt credit. You know, I'd like to give credit where credit's due. And there's been several athletes that have been part of that shift. And, you know, Kara Gauter has done a great job also in doing that and several athletes, you know. Um, but I definitely give a lot of credit to Meb because it's not just getting the deals, it's maintaining them, right? And so Meb did a really good job of over-delivering. And when you over-deliver, right, and the partner is happy, then they maintain their relationship with the athlete. They maintain their relationship with the sport. And so that's been wonderful to see. And then... They can expand and invest in other athletes, right? So I kind of see that example with Generation Yukan. Meb was one of the first athletes, the mm-hmm. first athlete that they signed. And since then, Yukan is sponsoring um, other athletes, athletes in different sports, events, um, which is great to see because at the end of the day, you know, it's great to see one athlete do well and Meb's done very well. But then when you can spread the wealth and the support, to other athletes that not only are trying to maximize revenue, but trying to earn a living to chase their dream and to see these companies support those athletes. It's so wonderful to see. And let's never, you know, not acknowledge and give credit. Um, Let's make sure we give credit to the shoe companies, because I do think even with all of this additional um, sponsorship opportunity through endemic um, companies and non-endemic companies in the sport, um, I think it's very important to give credit to the shoe companies because they are the bread and butter. You know, that is the first deal you usually sign. Uh, footwear and apparel, right? Because there's Wazelle, uh, there's, I think it's Athletica that signed um, Allison Felix. Mm-hmm. You know, but also the footwear companies that have been around and supporting athletes for decades. So I always, in because at the end of the day, if you have a footwear partner that's your primary partner and then you're not giving as much love, respect, and appreciation to that company because you're spending all your energy on a supplemental deal, you know, that is not the best move, right? If you can compliment them and say like, yes, you know, I'm going to do everything and more for my footwear and apparel company, but then I'm also going to support these other companies and promote these other companies in a way that it's it's uh, collaborative and uh, supportive rather than conflicting even though they're two different categories i think it's very important to be very strategic about that because you have to know where your support is coming from and make sure you devote your energy and resources to supporting that um company um and then also i would say like we've had a lot of success with alexi Papis, for example you know having champion as an apparel partner at treyu as a footwear partner and then several other companies as supplemental partners including uh, garment. I appreciate all of that insight. I know we've been going for 
a while now. I've got a couple more things before we wrap up this conversation. I know you love your job. I have a tremendous amount of respect just for the integrity with which you operate, but also the energy with which you bring to what you're doing day in and day out. And I know you love it, but what have been some of the biggest challenges for you working as an agent in track and field over the past 15, 16 years? Yeah. So I feel like I'm in a happy spot right now because I have a team, right? So it is, oh my goodness, so amazing to have people you can bounce ideas off of, right? That, um, you know, can help carry the load, right? And we have, we're, I just love where I am now because I really, I've got a dream team with me, dream clients and dream team in terms of the staff and resources. So I don't have too much to complain about right now, to be honest with you, but along the journey, and that doesn't mean I'm coasting and everything's easy, right? There's challenges, but you know, there, you have the resources and, and the minds and the time to handle those challenges as they come. Whereas when I was a one man operation, it was tough to kind of um, like I would work around the clock, right? Weekends, because I was passionate. And that, that's one thing I say to anybody who's passionate about what they do. Make sure you, you do things that are sustainable because no matter how passionate you are, no matter how much you love your job, if you're doing it like 24-7, seven days a week and you don't give yourself a break just because you love it, it's still work and it will eventually catch up to you. And I did have that moment Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, those moments, you know, when I was a one mind operation, I loved it. And that's why I was so quick to hire somebody else on my team, just to make sure we build the infrastructure to um, kind of, you know, sustain ourselves for many years ahead. The other thing is, I would say I learned this lesson initially in my career. As an agent, you know, if you have good news to share with a client, it's the easiest thing to do. You can't wait to get on the phone or send a text or an email sharing the good news. When it was bad news, you know, when a deal didn't go through or, you know, some other things that's just kind of like bad news, they didn't get into a meet, that used to be really hard for me. And I used to kind of carry it, you know, and kind of like not share it as soon as possible just because I had to kind of come to terms with it myself. But then I realized over the years, like, man, you know, at the end of the day, you have to be transparent. You have to kind of share the news with the athlete. If you can come up with an alternative plan so that when you share the news with an athlete, you have a game plan of how you can pivot. But I've become better, right? At the end of the day, whether it's good news, bad news, share it with the athlete so everybody's on the same page and then navigate it together, right? And sometimes you have to take a lead. But sometimes you just give the athlete a chance to have some input. And many times athletes are like, hey, you know, I'm not looking for a miracle. If I'm in, I'm in. If this deal happens, it happens. As long as you give it your best effort, that's all the athletes and clients want. So that's been a learning curve for me, and it's made me a better agent over the years, just being able to handle and share bad news as quickly as possible. Along these lines, how have you grown the most personally and professionally over the past 15, 16 years? So... I feel like I've found the balance nowadays. And uh, I think the pandemic has maybe found it, made it a little bit easier to balance things out because we're not traveling as much. So I'm really enjoying the nine to five schedule weekends off. And, you know, this is, you know, this is definitely sustainable. And 
you know, the best balance I've had probably when you are traveling, it makes it a little bit easier. I mean, it makes it a little bit harder to have a nine to five schedule and take weekends off because most of our, the events we attend are during the weekend. You're traveling during the week and it's hard to take off a day in the middle of the week, like on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So that has been a challenge a little bit, but still, you know, when you have a team, it's, it's definitely doable. Uh, so I think the balance both personally and professionally is probably how I've grown the most. Um, and also the other thing is like, you know, I, I used to be a warrior, like worry about things that I couldn't control. And now it's like, Hey, you give it your 110%. And at the end of the day, you know, you can't control everything. And so I've kind of have the peace of mind of giving it the best effort possible. And if things work out great, if they don't work out, then maybe they're not meant to be and just kind of, you know, coming to terms without stressing about what those results will be as long as I've given it my best effort. Last question. It's been a long, strange year for all of us. It's certainly been a very weird year in the world of athletics and road racing, but what is exciting you most about the sport right now and moving forward? Yeah. So I was actually so impressed by all the athletes that are running so well during this pandemic, right? There's such few opportunities and athletes, not only my clients, but athletes all over the world are maximizing each opportunity. So that's been very exciting to watch and see. And then, but at the same time, I always kind of like the athletes that aren't, you know, dealing with this the best way possible or the ones that are just saying, hey, you know what? This is a chance for me to get healthy mentally and physically. I give them a lot of credit too, because at the end of the day, it's, you know, you got to produce when it counts the most. And sometimes it could be frustrating or disappointing being on the sidelines and watching everybody else excel. As long as you're working towards those things, those accomplishments and those goals, I think you're making progress. And everybody has their time to shine, right? And for some people, it's right now. For some people, it's at the Olympic trials. And for some people, it'll be at the Olympic Games. So I just feel like um, it's exciting to see all the amazing things. And I just... Like Doha at the World Championships, you know, it's, it wasn't necessarily the ideal conditions for a World Championship, but the athletes just delivered in amazing ways. And I just feel like athletes always step up and it can't be the same athlete stepping up every time because every athlete has setbacks and challenges. But when you look at the collective, the sport as a whole and the athletes as a whole always deliver. And that's always exciting. Howie, I've loved this conversation. It was great to get to ask you more than five questions this time. I loved learning more about your dad and his forthcoming book, which you can check out at kafleski.com. Thank you so much for coming on the Morning Shakeout podcast. Thank you for having me, Mario. I really appreciate this conversation. All right. Thank you so much for listening in to the Morning Shakeout podcast. A big thank you to both New Balance and Girls on the Run for sponsoring this week's episode. I didn't think it was possible, but I love the new Fresh Foam 1080 V11 model even more than I did the V10, which is saying a lot. The Fresh Foam 1080 V11 is the best fitting shoe that I own, 
hands down, and the Fresh Foam X cushioning feels super comfortable underneath my feet, whether I'm running 5 miles or 15. It's lightweight and flexible, but also responsive and durable. Basically, the perfect trainer to log most of your miles in, which is exactly what I do in them. I wear it on most of my non-workout days and for long runs too. So check out the Fresh Foam 1080 V11 on newbalance.com or at the links in the show notes and consider adding a pair to your rotation today. Girls on the Run has been inspiring girls to know and activate their limitless potential and boldly pursue their dreams. On Thursday, March 25th at 7 p.m. Eastern, just a few weeks from now, you're invited to join an exciting 25th birthday virtual event celebrating the inherent power and courage of girls. Join me and RSVP today at gotr.gives slash TMS. That's gotr.gives slash TMS. The event is free to attend, but donations can be made and special add-on packages are available for purchase, such as a copy of Hoda Kotb's new book and a pair of Gooder sunglasses customized for girls on the run. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend about it or throw up a post on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook and encourage your friends and followers to subscribe to the show. You can also leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're listening to this on, which only takes a minute and it really means a lot to me couple more things before we wrap up i'd like to give a shout out as always to my longtime producer john summerford who makes every episode of the podcast sound clear and amazing also thank you to jeffrey stern for running the am shakeout social media accounts and chris douglas for handling sponsorship sales last thing if you are digging this podcast i think you'll love my newsletter it's also called the morning shakeout and you can subscribe to it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe Every Tuesday morning, you'll get my take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about reading and listening to. It's a quick read, 5-10 minutes tops, but it will give you plenty to think about throughout the rest of the week. Again, you can sign up to receive it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. 